Bienvenido and thank you for listening to the Word con Sazón podcast, a sermon collective of reforming Latinos. The following sermon was given at the Reformed Church of Los Angeles in the city of Linwood, California by Pastor Chris Marquez. For more information about the church or the pastors, please go to our show notes. Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Now one of the main things that gets in the way of evangelism is our feelings. Our feelings get in the way of evangelism all the time because we feel scared, we feel nervous, we feel in intimidated, etc., etc. And even worse, we don't evangelize people because we fear they won't like us anymore if we do. They'll think that, that we're annoying and they won't want to talk to us anymore. Now I don't know if this is for you, but I don't want fear to dictate my life, to tell me what I'm going to do and not do. I don't want to see my friends and family members in hell just because I was too scared or too embarrassed to share Christ with them. Now there is a problem in the church that is as big if not bigger than not sharing the gospel, and that is sharing a false gospel or an incomplete gospel or a different gospel, a gospel that leaves people thinking that they have in fact received Christ, but in reality they haven't at all. They have not received the Christ of the Bible, but one of our own imagination. Now this problem stems from the problem of the church wanting to be liked by the world a little too much. This usually takes on the form of Christians giving an abridged version of the gospel, removing the parts that are offensive and only giving the parts that are fun and friendly and appealing to the sinner. Now this idea of, of watering down the gospel has affected the way that the church does evangelism in a very negative way. The church now thinks that our evangelism would be much more effective if we could just get people to like us. And at the core of this idea is that people don't like us because our message is too offensive. That as long as we tell people they need to repent of all sin, including those which are sensitive topics in our society, like homosexuality, they say that people will not want to hear our message. And that as long as we tell people that if they don't repent, they'll burn in hell for all eternity, they will not like us. And so in response to this, the church has now taken the gospel and made it a positive message that focuses purely on the love of God and leaves out His laws, His wrath, and His judgment. So instead of calling the world to repent and become more like Christ, they are calling the church to repent and become more like the world. To them, it's the church that needs to change their mind and not the world. And they are becoming increasingly hostile toward the idea 
of calling the world to repentance. The word repentance itself has all but vanished from so many pulpits across America and across the world. I recently had a dispute with a brother who had a problem with me calling a particular pastor a heretic. And he says that he listens to this pastor all the time, and he says, in his opinion, that that man preaches the gospel. He says, I hear him preaching Christ, I hear him preaching salvation, I hear him preaching about the resurrection, I hear him preaching about all these things. And I said, okay, but does he preach against sin? Does he say that God will punish sin for all eternity? Does he even mention the wrath of God or the reality of hell? Of course not. And let me tell you, half the gospel or even 90% of the gospel is no gospel at all. You need to preach the full counsel of God. Now, so many in the church fail to understand that these types of ideas of preaching pure love, hope, et cetera, et cetera, is not from the Bible, but actually comes from the world. After movements like the Enlightenment, modernism, rationalism, the church began to adopt ideas from these movements. They bought into the lie that the church would not be able to effectively evangelize the modern rational man as long as she holds to supernatural ideas like the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the virgin birth, and any other supernatural phenomenon that sounds superstitious or like fairy tales to the world. They began to teach that if the modern man is going to take the church seriously, we can't go around talking about things like talking snakes and talking donkeys. So they began to remove the supernatural from the scriptures and began to define these things as pure allegory. Now the great Calvinistic preacher Charles Spurgeon was practically alone in his lifetime, along with the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, J.C. Ryle in fighting against these types of modern heresies to the point where the stress from the battles brought him to an early death at the age of 55. Now during his lifetime, there was another very famous preacher by the name of Henry Ward Beecher. Uh, he was the primary influence in moving the church in this direction of liberalism. Henry was the son of a very prominent Reformed preacher by the name of Lyman Beecher. And Lyman Beecher was a very solid preacher, and he was the brother of a woman by the name of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote the most famous book in their time, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now Henry started off orthodox just like his father, but eventually bought into the liberal ideas of his day. Henry was considered by many to be the greatest preacher in the world at that time. Some even gave him the nickname the most famous man in the land. With his wit and his powers of elocution and oratory, he was very influential and able to change people's mind, and he did. One of the lies Henry bought into was the idea that certain truths of the Bible could not be reconciled, namely things like the love of God and the wrath of God. The idea that a God that is all loving could not possibly send people to hell for all eternity. The equation would go something like this. Either God is all loving and not all powerful, or all powerful but not all loving. 
And the reason for that is because he says that if God is all loving, he would stop all the evil in the world. But since he doesn't, he must not be all powerful. He loves the world and wants to stop it, but he doesn't have the ability to. Or they say maybe he's all powerful, but he's not all loving. So he has the ability to stop all the evil in the world, but he doesn't do it because he doesn't love us. There's no way that he could be both, according to them. Now, Henry adopted the view that God is all love, which is interesting because I asked what is the basis for that? Why not pick the other equation that he's all power but not all love? He chose the position that benefits him the most and that would gain him the most amount of followers. Now, at the end of the day, Henry did not worship or preach the true God, but instead a God of his own imagination. It was a figment of his own imagination. God in the beginning made man in his own image and in his likeness, and now man returns the favor by making God in his image and in his likeness. Henry worshiped an idol of his own making. Now, Henry's influence of only preaching God's love heavily, heavily influenced the church at that time, and we are still feeling the effects of that till this day. Whenever you see churches purely preaching on hope, faith, and love, and never talking about repentance, sin, law, wrath, hell, that's because of the liberal movement that Henry influenced. The reality is, is that God spoke of, Jesus spoke of God's wrath and about hell more than he spoke about heaven. So any simple reading of the Bible will show you that Henry was not a biblical preacher, but one who preached a God of his own imagination. Now, a few decades ago, if you'll remember, if you were a Christian, if you're old enough, the most popular verse in the world was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, they emphasized that verse because of stuff like this, because it emphasized God's love. However, all was not lost at that point, because there was still an understanding that God in His love redeemed the world from their sin. So there was still the understanding that God was a Savior, that He was a Redeemer. That has changed. That verse has now been replaced by Jeremiah 29:11 as the most popular verse in the world, which says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Now this verse is a reflection of how people see God. They see Him purely as somebody who is there to make their lives better. He's just a genie, abracadabra, your wish is my command, right? And He's just there to make their lives better, to motivate them, to help them win Super Bowls, uh, to help them uh, make more money. That is the view that people have of God today, and that verse reflects that. But let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with that verse. How could there be? It's God's Word. The problem is how they use the verse. The problem comes with the way they interpret the verse. Friends, that verse has nothing to do with you. It's not, a it's not a promise from God to you to claim. Stop putting it on coffee mugs. Stop putting it on social media. Like if that promise is for you and for your children and for everybody else who's listening, because it's not. 
Contextually speaking, that verse was specifically to the people of Israel in the Old Testament who were God's covenant people in a very unique way, and they were in exile. They were taken into captivity by a foreign uh, nation because of their sin, and God allowed it to happen, and God was making them the promise that, I haven't forgotten about my promises to you, but you need to repent, and then I will bring you back out of captivity, as he did. That verse has nothing to do with me or you. Now, it's easy for these false teachers to use this verse here in America, the land of wealth and opportunity, to go and preach that to us. Why don't they go and preach this to third world countries where wealth and prosperity is impossible? They can't go and make those promises there because there, you know, there's not going to be one person who's going to end up becoming rich through applying their principles, as it were. Why don't they go preach it in China, where they're persecuted and Christianity is illegal? They're not, the church is not going to experience prosperity, wealth, and growth there either. No, they preach it here. It only works here. Do you think the early church preached that type of a message, that they would be blessed and prosperous and wealthy and healthy? No, they were told the opposite. They were like, get ready because you're about to die. All of you are about to get persecuted and killed. And that's exactly what happened. But the church today in America struggles from insecurity, folks. They want to be liked. They don't want pushback from the world the way Jesus and the early church experienced. And now the sickness the church has of wanting to please men rather than God has made its way into the church building in the use of gimmicks and unbiblical church practices. The church says the world likes rock concerts and amusement parks then let's bring in the fog machines and the arcade machines. Let's replace doctrine with Disneyland. Let's replace preachers with entertainers. Who cares about how God wants us to do church? Let's do church the way the world wants us to do church. I don't, people say, I don't want to go to that church. It's boring. The other church has uh, arcades for our kids and they love it here. We can finally get our kids to go to church. The other church just taught them the Bible. They hated it. What do you mean you can, all, you can finally get your kids to church? Who's the parent here? Then people wonder why their kids reject the church when they get older. If all the church offers is entertainment, the world offers entertainment as well and even better. So why would they even need the church? They say, I don't understand what happened to Mijo. I raised him in the church. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You, you raised him in Disneyland disguised as the church. Disneyland has a man dressed up as a mouse. These churches have Mickey Mouse dressed up as a preacher. They've replaced doctrine with Disney. They've replaced the Psalms of David with Dave and Busters. And then you wonder why your kids don't grow up to love Christ. Let me tell you this. What you win them with is what you win them to. If you win them with arcades, then that's why they're here. They're not here for Jesus, right? But if you tell them we're going to church for Jesus, that's why they're going to come. And if they reject it, it's because they're rejecting Jesus, and that's even better. I would rather people not be deceived and say, you know what, I don't want Christ, and just walk away, rather than thinking that they're Christians because they come to church on Sunday to play Street Fighter, right? Now, I got on my soapbox about that for a reason, because this mentality has affected the way the church does evangelism. People invite others to church so that they can see their dance performance, 
their little uh, hip-hop dances. Man, they can see better dancing at a hip-hop show. So why would they come to church for that? They're not going to stay from that. We have to stop trying to make the church cool for people. And the church needs to go back to being redemptive. People are dying from a virus of sin, and Christ is the only solution. That is all we are here for. We're not here to please people. We're not here to entertain people. We're not here to be liked. We're here to offer Christ. If people want it, then great. And if they don't, that's terrible, but that is not my problem. I am not going to adapt to people's desires to want to be entertained. So what I want to teach this morning is this, my big idea. Jesus Christ is coming back at an hour nobody knows. We need to wake up, stop playing games, and get to the necessary task of warning our friends and family of His imminent return in judgment, and persuade them to receive Him as Lord and Savior while there is still time. Now, the message that God has for us here will result in giving you the confidence to evangelize your loved ones effectively. Today, the church's greatest need is three things. One, they need to tap into the Spirit's power. Two, they need to trust the Father's timing. And three, they need to truly follow Jesus' example. And if you will apply this formula in your own personal life, you will start to see friends and family here at church with you, worshiping the risen Christ. My first point, we need to tap into the Spirit's power. The first part of the verse says, you will receive power. Now, the power of the Holy Spirit is the modern church's greatest need. The words recorded here were Jesus' final words to His apostles before He ascended into heaven. And so His final words here on earth ought to be our first priority in the church. This is the reason why you and I are still alive to witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't mis misunderstand what I was saying earlier about love. Love should be the priority, but the most loving thing that you can do for somebody is to share Christ with them, to tell them that they're sinners, they need to repent, or they will perish, but that there is a loving Savior who graciously died for them, and He'll extend mercy to them if they will receive Him. Now, Jesus wasn't concerned if they could do this or not, because He was going to give them the Spirit to empower them to do so. Now, the Spirit finally arrived on the day of Pentecost. The word Pentecost means 50th, because it takes place 50 days after the Passover, which is one of three major feasts that the Jews celebrated. Another name for uh, Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks. Now the Holy Spirit came with a boom. There were three signs present when the Holy Spirit showed up. There was wind, there was fire, and inspired speech. And now in Scripture, wind is often used as a symbol to represent the Holy Spirit. Jesus Himself said, the wind blows where it wishes, and, who, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And fire is often used as a symbol of the Spirit's cleansing power and judgment. Now, Acts 1a is a key verse as it relates to evangelism. Why? Because it tells us that the power to evangelize does not come from us, does not rest in us, but it comes from outside of us, from God. People who evangelize 
are not more confident than you are. They're not more skilled than you are. They simply tap into this power, and so can you. Ordinary people can do extraordinary things with this power. Now, let me give you three ways to tap into this power. Number one, you need to count the cost, okay? Evangelism is not only an event on Saturdays from 10 to 12 where we hand out flyers, although that is part of it. And, we, and this weekend we had our leaders uh, who recruited uh, some of our youth, uh, the youth ministry, to go out and, and, and hand off uh, door hangers in the city of Wilmington and uh, as we're planning a church there. And, uh, you know, that's available for you to do if you want to, you know, get your feet wet and get started in evangelism. But that's not all evangelism is. Evangelism is a lifestyle. And it will cost you everything, your time, your comfort, and even your money. Why is that? Because in addition to your tithes and offerings, every Christian should be giving to missions and church planting so that the gospel might continue to be preached and taken outside of our little zone, outside of our little city and continues to go to the uh, uttermost, remotest parts of the earth. It will cost us our comfort because we will have to be bold enough to open our mouths and share the offensive gospel to our lost friends and family members. And it will also cost us our time because we will need to spend time studying how to evangelize and how to witness and how to share your faith and defend it in order to be effective evangelists. Secondly, you need to be in constant prayer in private and in public. Every single Christian should have a prayer list with the names of every single person they know who is not a Christian. And you should be praying for them regularly, praying for their salvation. And then when you're around them in public, you should be praying in public and asking the Lord, Lord, give me an opportunity right now to share the gospel with them. And lastly, Christ-likeness. This is arguably the most important of the three. It was said of the disciples when they witnessed that the people knew that they had been with Jesus. There is a certain aroma that comes off of people who spend time with Christ. He rubs off on us. And that, my friends, is the most effective way to be a good evangelist. Now what exactly is the power that we receive? There's essentially three things, ability, boldness, and insight. Ability. You say, I don't know what to do, and I don't think I can do it. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the ability. There's boldness, but I'm nervous, I'm scared, I'm anxious. We'll give you boldness. Just ask for it. And then inside, I don't know what to say. He'll give you the words to say at the right time. We are to tap into the Spirit's power daily and make this a lifestyle, including at our work. And now some of you say, well, wait a minute, I thought I heard you say that before that we're not supposed to be evangelizing at work. I didn't say that. What I said was, you're not supposed to be evangelizing on the clock. Big difference. Coffee breaks, your lunch break, after work at those parking lot conversations, you're free to evangelize and you must evangelize. Let me give you three principles for evangelizing at work. The first principle is to just tell people you're a Christian. Just tell them you're a Christian. Just let them know that you're a Christian. Have you, have you ever noticed that anytime somebody goes through a hard time, as soon as life gets difficult for them, 
and everything falls on their shoulders and they're just carrying a burden that they can't bear any longer. You notice that the first person they always go to is to the Christians in the family or the Christians that they know because they know that they'll pray for them. They know that they can go to God for help. Doesn't matter if they're atheists, whatever, when life comes crashing down, people will always look to God to help them. And the Christian is the, one of the first people they will go to for advice. It used to happen to me all the time. I remember maybe 10 years ago when I worked as a delivery driver for uh, uh, LAUSD, and I remember I was delivering some stuff at a cafeteria in San Pedro, and there was a, there was a, um, a cafeteria manager there that he, he, was a, he was like a real like kind of um, prideful, kind of arrogant uh, he, uh, Jewish individual. He wasn't, he wasn't a practicing religious Jew, but he was an ethnic Jew. He didn't believe in any religion. He says, my hobby is to study all religions. And so every single time I would go there, he, he knew I was a Christian, and so he would give me a hard time every time I would show up there. He would give me different greetings from various uh, religions. He would say namaste, or he would say uh, salam alaikum, just different greetings from Islam and uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and all of that. And one day I received a phone call, and it was him. And he told me that he had stage four cancer. And I kid you not, this man who I saw as just like this very confident, aggressive individual was crying like an infant, begging me to pray for him because he knew that I was a sincere Christian. And it's easy to mess around and joke around and talk smack when everything is good. But everybody knows that when things get serious and life gets hard, and you know death is near, the games stop. And people know that there is a God in heaven. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 1 that everybody knows there's a God in heaven. They just suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They all know He's there, whether they say it or not. And that belief comes out when things get difficult. So that's the first thing, let them know that you're a Christian. The second thing is tell people your Christian activities. Somebody comes up to you at work and says, oh, what you do this weekend? Or what are you gonna do this weekend? Instead of saying, oh, I went to a restaurant or I'm gonna go to Disneyland, tell them, oh, you know, I, I, I went to church uh, this past weekend, heard a uh, very encouraging message. Or I, went, I, I had coffee with a, with a friend from church and they encouraged me or I took my kids to uh, evangelize on Saturday. Tell them what you did at church. At that point, you're not forcing religion down their throat. They're the ones that ask you what you did. And the third and final uh, principle is to just tell them the gospel, if you have the opportunity. Some of you have jobs where you can do that, where you can talk and stuff like that. And if you have the opportunity, just share the gospel. So those are the three principles. And the Spirit will encourage and empower you to evangelize them effectively. Now my second point is we need to trust the Father's timing. When it's the, the text continues to say, when the Spirit comes upon you. Notice it does not say if, but when. This is a promise, it is certain. We are assured that the Spirit will be with us in power before uh, we go before people and preach to them. He will be with us and the results will be that we will not have failure but success. Even if the person doesn't receive our message, we still know that the Spirit is at work. To go without the Spirit would result in failure. Now, 
I can tell the difference when I go and evangelize in the Spirit or when I just do it in the flesh. When I ask the Spirit to come and help me and give me those divine appointments or when I just get up and go. I can see the fruit when I ask the Spirit to go before me. Now another point of emphasis here is that we need to trust God's timing to see fruit. Too many times we want to see people become pastors five minutes after we share the gospel with them. It don't work that way. We plant the seed, somebody else waters, and then God gives the growth in His timing, not in our own. People will be saved on God's timeline, not ours. Charles Spurgeon again once said, how strikingly punctual providence is. You and I make appointments and miss them by half an hour. He was talking about Mexicans there, by the way. But God never missed an appointment yet. God is never before His time, though we often wish He were, but He never is behind. No, not by one tick of the clock. Friends, you are perfectly in God's timeline at all times. Everything that is happening to you right now, whether good or bad, is happening because it is the Father's perfect will for your life at this moment. Whatever you don't have, you don't have it because it's not good for you right now. Wherever you're at is where God wants you. As soon as He wants to change that, He will change that on His timing, not on yours. You must therefore wait patiently for God to produce results in your life as you labor in obedience. Are you trusting God's timeline in your life, or are you trying to get ahead of Him because you're anxious and impatient? The Spirit will give you all the power you need to plant those seeds, but you must wait on God to give the growth. And the Spirit will encourage and empower you to do all of this and evangelize effectively. And on my third and final point, we need to truly follow Jesus' example. The text ends by saying that you will be my witnesses, it says. Jesus said, my. So the Apostle Peter tells us that we have been called for a purpose and that since Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example for us to follow in His steps, we must do so with joy. We are called and commanded to follow Jesus by suffering for the sake of the gospel. Likewise, the Apostle John tells us that we who say we abide in Christ are obligated to walk in the same manner in which He walked. We are called to be witnesses like the Apostles of the things we have seen and heard. Now the Apostles were the chief witnesses of everything Christ did, including resurrecting from the dead. Therefore they were the ones authorized to testify to these events. Acts 4.33 says, and with great power the Apostles were uh, giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. The Spirit was with them as they testified to these truths. We, on the other hand, did not see these things, you and I, with our physical eyes, but we have the trustworthy testimony of Scripture that we might see these things through the eyes of faith and testify to them as well. Ultimately, we have experienced Christ in our lives in our own personal way, and we can always give testimony to what Christ has done for us personally as individuals. Too many Christians think that this 
command is only for uh, pastors or for the apostles or, or, or uh, the, the disciples of Jesus directly. But the testimony in Acts here that we see included the whole church. And it was the fulfillment of the promise and commission that Christ gave to his disciples. And we don't call it the great suggestion. We call it the great commission because it's given to command to everybody to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, lo, I will be with you until the very end. Again, too many Christians think that this was only for the apostles or disciples or for pastors, and they're all wrong. This is for all Christians to obey between Christ's first and second coming. Now, here at RCLA, we are a part of a network called Acts 29, and Acts 29 is a, is a network that is devoted to making disciples and planting churches. Now, if you read your Bible, the book of Acts only has 28 chapters, so we're the 29th chapter of the book of Acts. It's a continuation of the same thing. We're not a new message. We're not preaching something differently. The circumstances of the early church weren't different than ours. Their message was, is our message, their method is our method, and what they suffered should be what we should be willing to suffer as well. The early church went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and that's why we have the gospel today. And now it's our turn to do our part and to go from Linwood to Wilmington to all of South LA to the greater Los Angeles area and beyond. William Barclay once said, is it possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple? To be a camp follower without being a soldier of the king? To be a hanger-on in some great work without pulling one's weight? Once someone was talking to a great scholar about a younger man, and he said, so-and-so tells me that he was one of your students. The scholar replied, he may have attended my lectures, but he was not my student. There's a world of difference between attending a lecture and being a student. And the church has too many attendees, people listening to lectures, but very few true disciples of Jesus. My question to you is, do you come just to listen to a lecture? Or is the sermon an actual empowerment for you to go out and live out the truths that you hear? Are you a student or a lecturer or, or, uh, who listens to lectures, or are you a student who is a true apprentice, truly following their teacher, not only in word but also in deed? The Holy Spirit will empower you to do this work of evangelism effectively, but you must do your part. And so, family, I want to challenge you to do two things this week. Number one, make a prayer journal, a prayer list with the names of every person you know who's not saved and pray for them daily. Pray for opportunities to evangelize them. And number two, share Christ with at least one person this week. Share whatever you know about the person and work of Christ and what he's done for you. I had a half-brother that died of an overdose uh, several years ago, and he would, he would reach out to me from time to time. He lived up north, and uh, he'd want to, you know, uh, connect or whatnot, and I would always push it off. 
push it off, push it off. And I knew I had to hook up with him because I knew that I had to share the gospel with him. He was in drugs and, and whatnot. So I kept putting it off until I got word that he died. And I never shared the gospel with him. And now I have to live with that for the rest of my life. I pray that you wouldn't have to. I pray that instead you would say no to fear and yes to the Spirit that you might see your loved ones worshiping alongside of you. Again, because you said no to your feelings and yes to the faith that Christ has given you. You may be scared, but the Spirit will give you boldness. You may not know what to say, but the Spirit will give you utterance. You may not know what to do, but thank God for YouTube and all the evangelism instructional videos you can watch on there at any point of your day. You can learn to be the greatest evangelist ever in our day and age because of all the free resources you have. You're on your phone all day anyway. You're on YouTube all the time anyway. Might as well watch something that'll count for all eternity. Now, praise God that there is still time to even do that because one day there won't be. May I duly regard the doctrine and practice of the gospel, prizing its commands as well as its promises. Join me in a word of prayer.